This Week in Startups is brought to you by Dell for Entrepreneurs. Save up to 43% at launch.co slash Dell. While you're there, register for a free IT consultation and be entered to win a $200 Amazon gift card. Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And our crowd. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. It's September 2020. And we're very lucky to have our guest on the program today. He's an internet legend. And he has been building, uh, I think, his life's work for the last couple of decades, the Internet Archive. which many of you know as the Wayback Machine, the ability to look back and see what was on the web uh, in the past because it's all lost. And you you may or may not know that Brewster Cal also uh, worked on one of the predecessors to the World Wide Web, um, something called Waze, uh, which uh, eventually I think was Waze Inc. was bought by AOL. And then he did Alexa, uh, which tracked the the amount of traffic and ranked the internet that was bought by Amazon before they had Alexa, the virtual assistant. Um, And he basically has been around the internet uh, since before it was commonly referred to the internet. And prior to that worked with uh, Danny Hillis uh, at thinking machines, which I think was back in the eighties. They were creating the first parallel computers. Uh, and he studied at MIT with legends Marvin Minsky and Danny Hillis. Welcome to the program, Brewster Cal. How are you? Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. I mean, um, if you look back on your career now, uh, it seems like there's a theme here. Um, how would you describe your life's work at this point? You know, now having this, I guess, 20, 30 year, uh, you know, run in. Yeah. The, oh, it's the been great. Um, the the idea was to build a library of everything. Can we build the 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 global brain? Could we build the memex that uh, Vannevar Bush dreamed of of having ev- all information at your fingertips? Uh, Ted Nelson, Tim Berners Lee. Uh, it's been a recurring theme in the technology era, but of course, you know, the Library of Alexandria was the original of the. What would happen if you actually had all, all information at your fingertips? So that was the dream that I signed on to, and it's been, you know, kind of a strange trip uh, out there. Um, you know, it's gone through, you know, periods of, you know, mass you know, commercialization of the, sort of the, the 90s, and then we sort of hit the Facebook, MySpace you know, era of, of uh, social media. So yeah. nothing quite comes out the way you think it would. And if you look at that strange journey, uh, creating the, you, you were in the entrepreneurial space, you sold a couple of companies and you did okay, uh, which is great as a founder, but the internet archive, I think becomes the lasting legacy. Explain to the audience what the mission of the internet archive is and why it's so important to you. The idea of the internet archive is to build universal access to all knowledge. Can we make it so that anybody curious enough that wants to have access to any, Anything ever published, say a book or a lecture that was made available or old web pages, or can we make it so that people could go and learn from it and build on it and then make new things that are worthy of sharing? So that that was the uh, the that's the mission statement of the Internet Archive at archive.org. And mostly we've been doing the Wayback Machine. That's how most people think of it is, and that's basically a web collection of hundreds of billions of, of web pages, um, and it's used by hundreds of thousands of people a day. And it's been interesting that, you know, it's become such a staple of journalism because so many people, well, they try to remove things from the web or change things. And the average life of a web page is only 100 days before it's changed or deleted. So the idea of, of um, having the new generation publishing instead of, uh, well, clay tablets or papyrus or paper, 
it's it's digital and it's uh and it shifts and changes and there's only one copy it's usually just with the publisher's website um and that's not good enough one's almost always the wrong answer we're going to need multiple copies and then you also have this tragedy where sometimes you know we saw this in the 90s happen very often company would go out of business, they had all of this incredible content, all of this incredible knowledge, whether it was a blog company or a social network, and then poof, all of that knowledge, all of that learning, all of that art, science, whatever it was, commentary is gone. So you have like multiple uh, potential leaks in the system we have, whereas with books, we would print thousands or tens of thousands of them, they'd be distributed across yep. libraries. So sure. if somebody's copy was burnt of, you know, uh, a tale of two cities, we know there were other copies somewhere, right? And and that, this actually paradoxically, the internet was made for redundancy, but because of the silos, it doesn't actually have redundancy. It has redundancy as an internet, as a platform, but not for the content on it, correct? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, um, we, we had in the paper era, there are lots of libraries. If one burns down, there are others. Um, and so the web, I bless it, uh, is it was very easy to go and um, use, but it shifted an enormous amount of control into publishers' hands. Mm. So the there's only one website and there's one URL, and so it it can't it doesn't get copied. So we have this problem with um, with journal literature, right, or books that if a publisher wants a book gone, they can just take it away, and it's it's like it reached into every library and everybody's private collections, it yanked it out, and yeah, scary. So the idea of a library working this way is kind of frightening to think about but it's exactly what we're getting used to with netflix or spotify and it's even worse in the case of a lot of websites that go and encourage other people to put their photos on them or their mm. their dreams and their whatever whether it's geocities back in the day gone uh yahoo video uh, there was a yahoo video did you know there was a google video there i remember was. yeah before uh, they bought youtube there, there were about seven million videos on it until they turned it off and there's apple that had uh mobile me uh which was make your own websites until they didn't want it anymore and they just turned off everybody else's uh websites that had been counting on these billion dollar companies to last and keep their services going so asking publishers and now these platform companies to do the job of a library is kind of a fool's errand so the idea of of the internet archive is to try to build that up and um the brave browser they did something kind of awesome they made it so that if you hit a 404 document not found uh, in your Brave browser, it goes and queries the Internet Archive Wayback oh, Machine wow. automatically. What a killer and just feature. Says, hey, uh, it may be gone on the web, but do you want the uh, the old version? We'd love to see Chrome and, and Firefox go and, and sort of make the the web more reliable than uh, what's what it's become. And many of these social networks are black boxes where you have to be logged in to see the content. Now, Twitter is open. So if I were to pull up twitter.com slash POTUS, I could see the president's tweets there. But the president could delete tweets or um, any public official could delete tweets. And they often do that. And then those changes will not be recorded in the history books. But other social networks like Facebook, they make it very difficult because you have to be logged in in order to um, record what's going on there. So how does the Internet Archive deal with specifically Twitter? And Facebook, because of these two different, um, it's a, it's really challenging, um, and especially things like uh, a Facebook, which morphs for everybody that sees it, so that every, every time anybody that sees it, you're seeing a completely different Facebook. It's it's mm. customized to just you and your bubble, and so it's uh, particularly challenging. Um, so we archive the publicly accessible Facebook and Twitter that we can. Um, a lot of those platforms don't make it particularly easy, but we do what we, what we can, um, to try to make an enduring access to the cultural record right now, you know, especially during this pandemic thing, we're, we're all staring at screens all the time. It's sort of, that's now become our world. Now everybody's a homeschooler now. And how does this all work? And it's, uh, we're 
trying to make things that are available through screens to be as good and reliable and you can uh, as we can and I'd say overall we're failing I just you'd see sort of the 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 bubbles the fake news the sort of the obvious uh, corruption going on from uh, from foreign actors domestic actors people thinking they're doing the right thing by spamming the world um, we've got uh, some real problems to our digital infrastructure that I think we're seeing some of the what happens when that uh, goes on over the last several years, not just during this pandemic. So I, we've got to fix it. Um, and the Internet Archive's piece of this is to try to make enduring access. Uh, another is to uh, try to provide context around what mm. you're seeing. If things, things have been fact-checked, wouldn't it be nice to be able to see those fact-checks um, on there? You may not believe the fact checks if you're in a you know if you're in yeah, that kind of mode but at least it's made available theorist. to you all right when we get back from this quick break i want to know how corporations with their overbearing sort of interpretation of copyright look at the internet archive and then how you navigate that uh, with these big rights holders and social networks which have terms of service which are onerous and they also have unlimited legal uh budgets when we get back on this week in startups Hey, everybody, you know, Dell has been sponsoring This Week in Startups, and they've been a tremendous supporter of me for many years. And I have been a tremendous supporter of Dell's. And we're very lucky today have, to have Mobilaji, so come be uh, on the program. And he runs Dell for Entrepreneurs. You have Dell for Finance. What, what would that look like? If I was a 20-person company, I needed to get all 20 people set up at home. How do you actually finance it? What would terms look like ballpark? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought it up, uh, right? Because we want to make sure that entrepreneurs don't have to burn through their cash, right? As you know, um, there are a ton of news out there in terms of like, you know, different entrepreneurs getting like, you know, rounds of funding from VCs and uh, we've seen a number of those activities actually go up in the past six months. So for Dell Financial Services, we want to make sure we can offer financing for startups that meet certain requirements to provide that financial and scalable technology resource for them. So we try to encourage innovation, but also through our program, we want to help bolster the speed to market and, and, and you know, for, for the entrepreneurial job creation. There are key particular things to look at when it comes to like, you know, those requirements, right? Because we're able to offer um, lease terms, right? We're able to like, you know, offer like, you know, straight up terms that we feel like will work out for them. So the requirements when we have this conversation with entrepreneurs is that, you know, we look at the fact that, okay, are they planning to finance their equipment only? That's key. Um, are they currently, in terms of their current stage, do they have a revenue generating, are they at the revenue generating stage of the business? That's important to us. But more importantly, uh, we also look at the fact that, you know, have they been able to like maybe raise like a million dollars plus in VC funding throughout the last 12 months? So those are part of the key requirements to look at to make sure that, you know, we can get behind them and, and empower them to do more. Save up to 43% when you take an extra 5% off at launch.co slash Dell. And while you're there, you can also register for a free IT consultation and be entered in to win a $200 Amazon gift card. All right, Brewster Cal is with us, uh, legend of the internet. When I was coming up in the 90s, uh, we were watching you know, the, the folks from MIT and Mark Andreessen and uh, basically build the infrastructure of the internet, which then we got to build on top of. And so it's a privilege to get to talk to Brewster about how he sees the, the future of archiving this incredible asset and the importance it has to democracy. Uh, I noticed like, couple of my old zines, like Cyber Surfer magazines I worked on in the 90s, some of them had been scanned and put up there. How does the Internet Archive acquire something like magazines that were out there in the 90s that are no longer around and then um, scan them or movies? I noticed there are some Kurosawa films that were up on the Internet Archive. How do you acquire information? And then how do you deal with rights holders who might say, hey, we don't want you to archive this stuff? It's a two-part question there. So... The Internet Archive goes and crawls a lot of materials from the World Wide Web and puts them up uh, in the Wayback Machine for free access at web.archive.org. But also on archive.org, there's an upload button. So mm -hmm. you can go and, and put things up. And um, sometimes people put just fabulous things, and sometimes they put things that shouldn't be up there. And yeah. uh, and there are different signals for figuring out what really belongs in our library on the Internet Archive. And um, one of them is they can become fantastically popular. If they become fantastically popular and start to melt down our servers, then we'd look at it. And sometimes it's, it's not, you know, it's some 
current movie or something so we, we we'll take it down um and so we do try to uh find things that at least that get overly popular uh uh we we, we will examine those and then uh, others is people will write to us and say no you got to take things down and um uh and we're we deal with it in terms of going is like all right is that something that they own and if it is and then generally take it down if it's um you know if it's a public figure in the wayback machine then that may actually make some balancing calls in in all of this but we we've been dealing with the uh the takedown issues now for 25 years um as we've uh so it's it's just trying to make a system that works um and in general libraries and publishing have always worked in parallel um, there are certainly some publishers that think libraries are not necessary because their publishers are doing everything that libraries should or, um, or everything that in a library should be able to be retracted from a library under some kind of license. That's, that's kind of awesome. Um, but, the, but I think a lot of us remember what libraries are for um, in society as a culture and why they play a different role. And they're just the... So we're not trying to replace the publishing infrastructure. In fact, libraries uh, are completely dependent on the public and publishing infrastructure. Like twenty percent of book publishing revenues comes from libraries and the big trade right. publishers. So that's uh, libraries really keep uh, the whole system going and preserve the materials. So right. if things become too hot out of a library, then that's usually some reason to sort of worry about it. Uh, and there are things that we do take uh, do take down. If an artist regrets a piece of work they did, um, or wants the refreshed version to exist in the world, let's say an artist like Mark Knopfler, uh, he had in his uh, "I Want My MTV" song, you know, some derogatory words that he was using that he quoted somebody as saying, but they may not want that to exist in the world right now because of cancel culture and. How does the Internet Archive look at something like that? You know, a word, you have this word policing culture and words change over time and they hurt people's feelings and, and they trigger people. And now you might be caught in the middle of that where somebody put a piece of art into the world that had certain words or certain ideas. And now that person, the artist themselves says, I want to change that. I don't want that to exist. But history should have that version exist, I would think, in your mind. Do you have to deal with that too? The artists themselves saying, "Hey, can you please not let this exist in the world? I changed my mind. I changed my mind." Mostly, art. this uh, all of that back and forth tends to happen among the major platforms because they're, you know, they're dealing with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of downloads of these things and that, all that. The library tends to stay kind of in the background, and that's sort of where it's supposed to be. The Internet Archive is. Well, it's an archive. It's you know not the most exciting thing, um, but there are issues that do come up in our in our sphere, and we try to react in an empathetic way and try to understand what's what's going on out there. And uh, so we we try we try to keep things up, but we're also not sort of ideologically so rigid um, mm. that. Um, it, it goes against sort of where we're all trying to get. I mean, this, as the whole digital wave has sort of come across, there's been these different phases of it all. And, um, and we're all just trying to figure it out. And I'd say the Internet Archive, by being a nonprofit, there's no money involved. Um, we're trying to do uh, the right thing. And though many people may think we're doing the wrong thing, but at least hopefully people are giving us uh the the benefit of the doubt it's not an advertising driven model we're not trying to glue people to our screens um and i think that gets us a long way if people are trying to figure out whether they're being taken advantage of and if they mm. feel like they are they'll throw things at you whether it's copyright or lawyers or storm you or do whatever um or send a billionaire after you um that <laughs> there's um there's something that uh is we're uh we try to step back from that so we're trying to make sure that the internet archive does not look like it's uh an an organization that's trying to take advantage of anybody it's an interesting thing intent and being fair really do matter in when it comes to the law 
I've always explained this to people like, hey, when you're doing fair use, you, you the first word is fair, right? And fair use of copyrighted materials, it's pretty well established what that four-part test is. But I was always amazed that it's up to interpretation. And if people want to go to the mat and actually do a fair use lawsuit, and most people do not, they just want to be treated fairly. So your intent is archival. Your intent is not to disrupt their ability to do commerce or do business in the world. So if you have a fish concert or, or a dead show from the 70s, like that's just there so it doesn't get lost into the ether, right? I mean, it, the intent is yep. not to monetize it or sell it to anybody. It's just to preserve it for future generations to hear that one, you know, track that, you know, Garcia just perfected, right? You know, and well, actually, you, you brought up a good, a good contrast. There's um, the live music archive on the Internet Archive is fantastically popular. It's amazing. There's, there's, yeah. there's thousands of bands, but probably the, you know, the most prominent is the Grateful Dead, which started this whole uh, area of non-commercial distribution of concert recordings. And um, they've basically given the okay for things to be on the internet archive. Uh, all the other bands have given like explicit emails. Okay. Um, and um, fish, I think it was fish um, originally said, yes, let's do this. And then they wrote back to us. This was you know early days. So this is now probably close to 20 years ago. Um, said, hey, we're going to start selling all of our uh, our concert recordings. You know, would you take them down from the archive? And we said, sure, right? I mean, we, what we want is universal access to all knowledge. And um, while they're trying to hawk it, then, you know, we uh, they, they, they pulled back the uh, the permission and, and we were fine uh, with with that. But we find that often having things available on the Internet Archive as well as being sold doesn't tend to interrupt the uh, the selling. Um, hmm. the, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a yes. And, um, and yeah, there are a lot of people that sort of think, oh my God, if there's, if there's one copy, one place, it's going to be in billions of people's hands immediately. It turns out to not be true. So, you know, you look at the uh, internet archive has a little download counts of just how many times they've been, you know, accessed. And we have a lot of things that have been accessed hundreds of times. We think that's awesome. And then somebody picks it up and moves it to YouTube and it gets downloaded tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times. And it's, that's okay. You know, as long as it's, you know, say it's some of the public domain films that we've paid to digitize. Um, and uh, so there's very different paths um, mm. to try to make, make this whole thing work. And I, I just hope that uh, we don't get so infuriated and tweetomatic to go and just always yell at people all the time which starts to feel a little bit of the world that we're in now um and try to figure out how to make a system work by being a library for those of us old enough to remember sort of how libraries work um what they're what they're for um i think that's a that's an analogy that works for people and we're true to it Hey, when we get back from this quick break, I want to know how you think about software. Uh, obviously, software gets written and then copies are on floppy disks back from the 80s and 90s. And then today we have apps, but then apps get kicked out of the app store or the company gets shut down like Path or another company. And then where does that app go? Where does that software go? Or video games that existed and the ROMs are gone. I'm curious uh, when we get back from this commercial break, how you think about archiving software itself when we get back on This Week in Startups. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you already know that you can blog and publish content as you like. You can promote your business, announce upcoming events, do special projects like I do all the time. And of course, you can sell products and services of any kind because they've added all that e-commerce functionality to Squarespace's gorgeous easy to use designs uh, and they have amazing beautiful templates done by professional world-class designers so your website looks like you spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars on it not just 25 dollars a month they have this incredible e-commerce functionality that i've talked about and everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box so if somebody's got a gigantic phone or a tablet or anything in between a desktop a laptop it's all responsive, beautiful, elegant design that's been tested over and over and over again to be perfect. That's the beauty of investing in a Squarespace website is that they keep adding features, but they keep the price the same. And we did remote demo day. I asked my team quite 
effervescently. Get me a website right now for remotedemoday.com. We need to fund companies during a pandemic and bing, bang, boom, zip, zip, zip. It was up and running in just, you know, under a day. And thank you, that was us writing copy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your website, I want to make sure you use the promo code twist. You have to use the promo code twist. And then you get that 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. As you know, Squarespace has been supporting this podcast, I think for close to a decade. They've been with me from the beginning. They've been on the podcast. They've supported everything I've done. And I really appreciate it to the team at Squarespace. What a great product. What a great solution. What a great team. Congratulations on all your success, by the way. And if you're out there and you're looking to build a project to do e-commerce, special project event, blog, whatever it is, you know what to do. Go to squarespace.com slash twist. Okay, we're back with Brewster Cal, founder of the Internet Archive, Internet Legend. And we're talking about backing up our legacy and backing up the world's knowledge, not just searching and indexing the world's knowledge like Google does a great job of, but actually making sure that that knowledge is stored and saved for all time. Just at a technical perspective, is all of this on EC2 on servers or are they at servers in that Internet Archive building uh, in the Sunset District of San Francisco that I drive by sometimes? Where are the servers Uh and the hard drives? Uh, well, we, we don't just have one copy because, you yep. know, one is the wrong number. But yes, number. actually, uh, a lot of the data, it's about 60 petabytes of data. So peta is what comes after terra, uh, terra, peta, uh, 60 petabytes. Um, and if you go into the, uh, in the building, which is this gorgeous building with pillars, uh, and yep. it was an old Christian science church. Mm. Uh, and you go into the great room with the, you know, the hall, the beautiful, and yeah. in, in the back, there are actually servers that have lights blinking on them. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of like open stacks of a library. I, you can uh. actually see, you never get to see somebody's servers, right? They're in the clouds right. somewhere, whatever the heck that is. Um, yeah. it's, and, uh, it's, it's this, uh, they're beautiful. And, uh, one, one thing I love about it, I've been building supercomputers my whole career. Um, and the, the, the thing about this one is the lights actually mean something. Every time uh, a light blinks, is somebody either uploading something or downloading something from the archive. Right. So I think yeah. it's just glowing books. So it's books mm. that are glowing. If anybody is reading that book anywhere in the world, then it glows. Um, anyway, it's and Is that building enough to, to store all the footprint you need? And, and then how do you think about 10 years from now? No, it's it's actually not already we've gotten too big for it. Um, But it does hold a lot. um, And because hard drives are continuing to get more and more dense, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, and it has an added benefit that it heats the building. Ah. So we actually use the energy from the servers to heat the building. So uh, we're... we're, uh, it's saving money and being green all at the same time uh, as we're uh, we can actually see the servers being used over the multi gigabit fiber that connects the building to the net. And do you have an endowment of sorts that throws off capital to do this? Or are you every year just trying to keep the lights on for the archive? Yeah, the Internet Archive is, is funded based on uh, a lot of libraries, about 600 libraries and museums and organizations that give us money to archive web pages for them through the archive mm. service, mm. but also grants. But a big and growing part is the, um, is the donations we're getting from users. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the Wikipedia model, the NPR sort of, please. Um, yeah. uh, and it is, I love that particularly because it puts us in the right direction in the sense that we want to be as useful as we can to everybody we can. Uh, and, but some of the grants come from, uh, the big foundations. Some, a lot of come from some of the new ones, uh, a lot of the crypto. Guys have ah. basically been extremely, and it's almost all guys, but there's probably other, um, a lot of it's anonymous, um, have been contributing to the Internet Archive uh, to basically build infrastructure. And the, the, we see the Internet as part of that infrastructure. What, what is so, the yearly budget to maintain it? Is it does it cost just to keep million it? St- a, about 20 wow. million a year. So the oh, okay. Internet Archive is over 100 people. Um, a lot of them are scanning books. Um and uh, and and other things, but it's it's actually kind of challenging um, to do. But on the other hand, I'd say we're a bargain. So um, if you take the uh, the San Francisco Public Library, is about 170 million a year. 
Really? Um, I didn't realize it was that big so, of a budget. So you know, for a you fraction take, of that, you do all these- So we're about these- the Alameda Public Library. Um, that's about the cost of the Internet Archive. And we're about the 300th most popular website. So there are 300 websites that are more popular than the Internet wow. Archive. But there are hundreds of millions that are less. Yeah, I mean, it, and I could sign up right now and do a reoccurring donation, correct? If I just go to yes, the well, archive. Thank you for asking. Why? Sure yes. enough. So go to archive.org, hit donate. We take anything uh, and everything. But also, a lot of people contribute their time. They mm. upload things that are important. They they might donate some money, uh, some yeah. stock, some crypto, um, and that this is the way that the that something like the Internet Archive survives in the long term is that it's wanted and needed mm. um, by by all of us. That's the way that we're going to survive and thrive. Yeah, and I'm I'm just going in here right now to archive.org slash donate, where you can all go and just putting in my own $25 reoccurring monthly donation. It's a no-brainer, given the value I get from it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a spotty user. Once in a while, I just need to look at a web page that doesn't exist anymore, and I go there. Let's talk about software, which I teased before the break. Uh, I noticed that there were some uh, software, there's a software section, and you have ROMs, things like video games that don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what you've accomplished so far in basically backing up software um, and then yep. what you haven't figured out yet. Cause I think the app stores are a particularly hard oh, yes. problem the to internet solve. Era software. So we started with the old, old stuff um, by working with these communities. There's a community of people that had been building um, emulators that yes. are kind of, you know, kind of maim and these awesome emulators. Um, but they were difficult to use, frankly, and you know, it took you know some real dedicated effort. And there are other communities that were dedicated to the Amiga, or the Commodore 64, or the Apple II, and they um, or some of the old game consoles that they went and you know basically took the the bits off of the PROMs um, to try to get them into the emulators. And working with these different communities, there's this guy named Jason Scott that works for the archive, and he said, "I think I figured it out. We could go and emulate." those games, those old platforms, the Apple II or IBM PC in your browser by using JavaScript. And I said, no way. That's never going to work. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a little time and, and no budget. And uh, let me uh, see if we <laughs> I can just work with these, these different communities to get it to go. And they took MAME, which is this emulator software written in C, and they used Inscription to cross-compile it into JavaScript. Oh, my God. Uh, and... Then got it. So when you go to the archive.org and go to the historic games collection or go to the IBM PC, you click on it, it downloads the emulator in JavaScript and it boots an IBM PC in your browser. It's amazing. It's just surreal that this works. And then it goes to, to the Internet Archive as a virtual floppy drive to go mm. and get the software and amazing. then download that in, into, the, into your browser and you're, and you're playing Oregon Trail. It's, Interestingly, uh, pr- that is, that's my experience. My wife and I uh, knew about Oregon Trail from the 80s and 90s when we had that game on a floppy disk. We told our daughter about it. She was obsessed with it. And the way we found it was, if you go to the Internet Archive, um, you can find the MS-DOS version of it and hit power and hit play and just play it in the emulator right there. Your childhood popping right up for you to see, whether it's Atari or Commodore 64, all that software not okay jason i gotta ask yeah. did you ever win at oregon trail or did you always <laughs> die somewhere always by died, indians always. or dysentery yeah i mean, always died it, and then you you also have prince of persia on there which is a really good book out right now about the story of the creator of prince of persia that like the strike oh, I've, I've been trying i i can't get that to i i die every time when we <laughs> put up these it was so fun so jason scott got all this together and we sort of came up with you know a few thousand games and and uh and some of the old productivity software i'd actually never oh, I, right. i'd use excel and i'd used uh, lotus one two three but VisiCalc was the original spreadsheet. I'd never actually been so i thought it was going to be people are going to wow you can actually use VisiCalc. it's like <laughs> nope it was Oregon Trail. And yeah. so people just went for Oregon Trail and it melted our servers and we had to go and reinforce and put copies up. And it was so fun um, as people were trying to discover and kind of relive their the uh, the 80s and 90s. Um, so a little bit of nostalgia, but also be able to show it to their kids. It's like, hey, and some of it actually 
is worth reusing. The th cool thing about Oregon Trail is you always lose. It is just <laughs> such a non-2020 where everybody's a winner. Yeah, yeah here's no, a trophy no. <laughs> for showing up. It's like, nah, you die. And you're die. Okay, let's figure out another way for you to die. Um, yeah. And so anyway, uh, I, I have met a few people that have actually won an Oregon Trail, but I think it's just evidence of, of misspent youth. All right. And when we get back from this final break, I want to talk about the app revolution and all of these stories and ephemeral by design content that we're now losing unless people happen to screen record and how you think about that next challenge at the Internet Archive when we get back on this week in startups. Do you wish you were in on some of these best performing IPOs in 2019 and 2020? Well, our crowd investors were. Yes, that's right. Our crowd. O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D. And now you can join them in the next generation of startups that are going to go public. With our crowd, accredited investors, you know what that is, have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. And that's a key. Our crowd investments have IPO'd, like Beyond Meat, or been bought by companies like Intel, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in TechC. And TechSee is a software startup revolutionizing how leading enterprise companies provide remote customer support. And you can get in early on TechSee and other opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. Obviously, they're uh, you know partnering here with This Week in Startups because they know we have a lot of accredited investors, got a lot of angel investors, and a lot of angel investors, they don't just want to invest in like accelerator incubator companies that are very nascent. They may want to invest in that middle uh, phase of startup life, the growth phase, before they go public, but after they've gotten some amount of traction. And that's really what our crowd is specializing in. So if you're interested in investing, the account is free. Just go to our crowd, O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist. That's right, rcrowd.com slash twist. Join now if you're investing in that next generation of potential IPOing companies uh, like Beyond Meat. Great job, our crowd. And let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody, Brewster Kell is with us. And as we round third base here with the Internet Legend, just want to remind everybody that you will use the Internet Archive uh, at some point. You've probably used it many times, maybe didn't realize you're using the Wayback Machine, and that it is worthy of your consideration for a donation, especially if you've got equity in companies or crypto. Go ahead and ship it. Ship it over at archive.org and uh, make a donation and really be part of the solution here of preserving our legacy. All this stuff is important. Hey, um, two more things I want to talk to you about. One is apps and two is micro schools. Let's go quickly through apps. Uh, you know, you have these things like Snapchat and stories, TikTok, people record stuff, these corporations own it, it's in an archive somewhere, they have access to it for all time, but it kind of goes away at any point in time, they can just take away your YouTube channel, take away your Snapchat, turn off your Instagram account. How are you do you have the ability to uh, go deep into apps to kind of extract that data, or is that too hard? You have to wait for somebody uh, to post it on a apps website. Are, apps are the enemy. You know, the, the, mm. if there's the protocols and standards are our friends, and mm. silos, proprietary, uh, locked down. I mean, you think of the, you know, what what's the anti-web? And I, I yeah. would say it's it's the iPhone. Um, yeah. So the iPhone is lockdown on every level so it's all segmented into different apps so there's no links that go between apps really i mean it's really it's not right. designed for that Black um box. and yeah. they approve what's on it and what's not on it that's that's kind of awesome there's no law involved there and that uh then the, you can't change the operating system or it's called jailbreaking <laughs> uh, that's yeah. oops and then it goes over the cell phone network which uh we know some of the problems there so it's it's sort of that's kind of the anti worldwide web so mm. um we have to really keep an open internet going if we're going to have lots of winners otherwise we're going to end up with very few winners and i don't i like games with lots of winners so we mm. don't want to just one monopoly and oh uh, well we'll all we'll all win by owning stock in it that that's sort of the milo minder binder from uh from from yeah catch 22 is that's not the way to make a, a rich ecosystem uh work so we're really into the whole open and commons and providing services and structures around the the, uh, the commons. I mean, this is why podcasting work. has been so great, right? I mean, podcasting used open standards. Dave's, Dave uh, Weiner worked on the RSS and OPML and attachments there. And you just think about that one stroke of genius where we put attachments into RSS feeds and all of a sudden, an entire industry exploded. Podcasting. Just from yes. that one little open source standard. 
we had RSS feeds for blogs and for content and titles, subject, metadata, whatever. And then, boop, we just added an attachment. And now an entire industry. And now what's happening? Spotify wants to unravel that and not have the RSS feeds and not have, you know, and then buy off, right. you know, specific right. podcasters I, and then put them in a black box. It's uh, Yeah, Mike Masnick uh, had a great essay on uh, let's have protocols, not platforms. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, hey, unfortunately, it's harder to make protocols that don't suck and um, make it so that they continue to get better. I mean, large part, people are giving up on email because we've just had such troubles with it and it hasn't evolved. Um, so now we're using Slack. So I think what we really want is decentralized systems. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think of it as sort of, I want blank but decentralized. And the Internet Archive has been working on decentralized web technology. How do you go and take this idea of the JavaScript running in your browser to do a peer-to-peer -peer network? for the whole web um, so that things live everywhere and nowhere. So there's multiple copies of things everywhere. That's yeah. the system that actually we should have built originally, but frankly, uh, they weren't really available at the time of, um, of Tim Berners-Lee's doing the web. And we have to make it so that people can publish and make some money out there. Cause right now this yeah. ad based model is, is causing real problems. What, why is the ad based model so problematic? Because it tends to go towards winner takes all. Um, you, you see things hoovered up. Um, in magazines. You go to a, a you know if you actually see old old time you know paper magazines in a grocery yeah. store. They're often owned by very few players because they control the ad networks that that sell mm -hmm. ads across all of them. Or uh, newspapers. There used to be um, lots of little newspaper companies and they got hoovered up and then they all yep. sort of crumbled. So it's um, you end up with these. Uh, monopoly structures um if the money goes through uh too few hands you're you don't have a market you don't have an open mm. system that works so it must be uh, and encouraged actually, to, the crypto yeah. thing is kind of a good you know api for money out there on the net so let's let's build on it yeah i mean the brave browser came up as like a really interesting foray into that the ability to just donate or to give a little bit of cryptocurrency just when you're giving your attention to a web page seems like a no-brainer of an idea and actually that's how uh, we both know AOL started where they were charging three, four, five bucks an hour, and they would just give 15% of that, 20% of that to whoever the content owner was. And that's Absolutely. how they had a royalty system. Worked I in France, love right? the royalty system. That's how books yeah. worked for a long, long yeah. time until, well, fairly recently. Now we have monopolies again. But uh, was there, it was easy to purchase, but a, a little bit of money made it all the way back up to the author, usually too little. Yeah. Um, that's nothing new. But um, the uh, we had a distributed decentralized system and AOL replicated that by going yeah. and paying people for being on the platform until they turned a corner and said, no, let's charge for people to get to our eyeballs. Remember that awful period of the nineties when they talked yeah. about eyeballs? Um, yeah, they would just yeah. sell the, they would sell their auto channel to one person, sell their music channel to one person, just whoever the highest bidder was could just yep. buy out the entire inventory. And they flipped the model and it's, yeah. it's the classic ad based model and it's just not the way to go. I, I, you must be encouraged by watching the emergence of email newsletters um, and journalists going and just, you know, because they, I mean, it seems to be because of cancel culture to a certain extent, you have Matt Taibbi uh, and, um, you know, other uh, journalists who maybe are too controversial, maybe their Overton windows a little too wide for their current publications. And they've gone and then started their own newsletters and get a thousand, two thousand true fans to pay 10 bucks a month. All of a sudden you're, you're making a better living than you did when you were writing for a publication, then those emails could make their way into the archive. Do they, you have somebody could, signing up for emails? I think we need a mechanism emails? to, yeah, pushing people into the into being on the fringes to try to do something as normal as paying your rent just yeah. isn't the way to go. Um, mm. So we we need mechanisms to go and have people be able to sell things. One, uh, we have this problem with uh, with book publishers; most of them won't sell us eBooks. They just won't hmm. sell it. They'll, they'll do these sort of funny licensing things with these long scrolling things and uh, uh, where, okay, it's only for a short time, a, a year, and the, or you can only read it 20 times and then it goes away. And it's just like, what? What happened to actual selling things? And right. so I think we need to get back to some basics. So let's sell eBooks. Let's sell MP3s. Uh, let's go and make things available in such a way that you can. And yes, can you rip, rip? rip it off yes is it dorky yes so why don't we yeah. go and, and actually have a system that uh, that 
that works. Um, Ad-based system is going um, kind of sideways out there. Mm. Um, that's sort of the that recent movie on on the social dilemma. You know, it really points to some of the problems that we've we haven't overcome. The web is too simple. Um, yeah. We need to give some alternative possible solutions. Uh, let's let's pivot over to. Uh, micro schools, something you've been involved in uh, for some time, and uh, people are now having to embrace pods and micro schooling, homeschooling. I guess these are all kind of uh, in that zone. Um, and I got tremendous resistance when I announced I was doing a little pod and, and trying to figure out, hey, how do we educate our kids if the schools are going to be closed this year, which I think they're going to continue to be closed, sadly, um, because of the pandemic. What are your thoughts on micro schools? Oh, and, uh, I, yeah. I'm completely for it. So I, I actually tried it. So, yeah. um, I, the idea of having a uh, one-on-one schooling or, mm. or, or, or I called it custom schooling. So it's not quite homeschooling, mm. but, um, and uh, a couple of my friends had been doing this, uh, Stephen Wolfram, uh, with yeah, Danny for, Hillis, from yeah, um, sure. have, have done, have done this where they hired teachers to teach their kids. And frankly, mm. I thought it was too uh, extravagant for words, right? I mean, this is like, I'm supposed to believe in public schools, right? What, you know, what's going right. on? How, why are we doing yeah. this other thing? But I, so, but I had my kids in, in private school here in San Francisco and it wasn't working out for one of them. Uh, and so I thought, okay, why don't I do out the math? And it turned out that if I paid teachers more than they were being paid in these private schools uh, or even in a public school, Right. That I could make a classroom of between one and four kids, and the teachers are making more, and the the and the kids turn out to thrive in this sort of absolutely small environment. right. Three to and one is a better ratio also, than thirty to one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you imagine? Okay. So the we have set teachers up to lose. So they, right. they basically have to walk into a classroom of thirty kids. And not only that, the next hour, they have a different 30 kids and then another 30 kids. And they have to go and do report cards on these kids twice a year. I mean, you think of a boss, right? We, we say if you're managing more than seven people, that's too many. And you'll, you know, getting around to doing your job reviews um, is, is, is pulling teeth out of managers. So this is a – you uh, teachers often have 100 or 120 little – direct reports and they have to right. go and give report cards and talk to parents about them. And I think we've made it too hard. Yeah. And I Set think we have down. a lot more people that can teach if they taught in very small scale environments. Um, right. And it costs less. So they, they, my, my financial thing on this was that it costs $10,000 per kid per year in the United States to have them schooled in public school. That's how much yeah. it costs. More in a big if, city like New York, I think is twenty two, and yeah, some other San Francisco is more. 20. But ten yeah. across the whole country. If you yeah. were to take that ten thousand dollars and pay um, all the teachers more than they're paid on average across the United States, and you had one administrator for every five teachers, hmm. if you calculate out, if you take the money and you don't put the money in anything else, like no teeth, right. no. No classrooms, no, no, no textbooks, no, 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 no. If you no just offices. put it in those, yeah. you'd end up with a classroom size of four. And a classroom size of four, um, everything's different. Like what a class is, where a classroom is, how do you deal with it? So we did this with our kid. Um, and we did it actually with a classroom size of one because we could. Um, and it worked great. And he just was engaged all the time. And if he wasn't engaged, the teachers just said, I'm done here. You're not paying attention, right? Go home, right? And you know he didn't do that again the next time. And he right. loved it. And he graduated from high school, our high school, a year early, went to Cornell, did great. So we've Amazing. seen it all the way through. Um, and so the idea of going and have, rethinking, so you have teachers, um, and we can all teach something, right? We all have yes. something we're good at. And that enthusiasm is infectious. So I, I did Euclid's Elements, this book written in 300 BC at the Library of Alexandria. It's geometry, geometry. So we worked through Euclid Elements book one together. And we bonded. It was fabulous. Amazing. But otherwise, it was other people doing, uh, doing the why work. So much, why is there so much resistance when somebody like you or when I tweeted it to this basic concept where the math 
is undeniable, right? If you just look at teacher salaries, 50, 60K in the United States, and then you look at what private schools charge, 30, 40, 50K a year, uh, and the math just kind of works out that like two or three students in private school or four or five kids in public school, we could get rid of all of this overhead and infrastructure and provide a massively radically better micro-schooling experience, but people seem to defend and want to attack anybody who chips away at the established dysfunctional education system we have today. You must have gotten massive blowback, I would think, on um, your ideas around this. Well, I think it's the blowback that I felt originally when, my, when I saw my friends doing it. It just mm. felt too elite for words. I mean, it just feel like it's only going to be available to the very, very rich. And it turns out that's not actually true. It's if not we were true, to the rethink it all the way yet. through. And yes. I think we can find teachers in every place. I mean, so you don't necessarily want to turn everyone into an eight hour a, a, uh, a day teacher. But let's take people that they're, they work down at the auto place or they're in a store. They've got something to teach maybe an hour a, a week. And sure. let's go and put them on and have them teach and put that and blend it into their world. I think we've ended up with sort of segmenting school so far from our day-to-day -day life. It's someplace we send our kids and, and away. Yeah. And this pandemic, if it's one thing that's happening, is we're rethinking everything. Everybody's trying to understand what their work-life balance is, how are they going to raise their kids, how they're interacting, how it's working, how it's not working. So let's take advantage of this, you know, uh, terrible Pause. situation yeah. that we're in yeah. to learn the some new tricks because i think if anybody really looks at how the school system has evolved it isn't the panacea that we're all hoped no. it would be it's kind of kind of creaky it does really well for people well like me i did yeah. really well going through school i i could ace any test even if i'd not even read it i mean it was just like i got good at the me mechanisms of school that's not true for everyone and yeah. a lot of people sort of fall off the edges they get shunted aside and maybe something else would make sense for them and one kid um really didn't want to step out of the school system he was in he liked hanging out with his friends the the other one was a birder and he um so he he liked birds. He learned from people in every decade of, of their lives. He was good friends with somebody in every decade of their life. He Man. had more positive role models than the 30 kids that were surrounding him when he was in uh, normal school. So it's uh, one thing I learned out of this whole experience is one kid at a time, one year at a time. Mm, so you just basically advice. have to figure it out. Um, and try some things out and what i what i did is once i started to find that it worked i tried to share it so yeah. i shared the teachers with other people some other people started pulling their kids out of schools and putting them in some of them liked it some of them uh actually wanted to go back to school so they did um but a lot of people kept it going we did a conference on brewster.kale.org that's a yeah. private blog brewster.kale.org there's a tab on education and there's the write-up of how the finances work, how the yep. issues worked with all the parents trying to deal with it, the, what the social problems were or not among the parents with their, with their uh, colleagues when they were doing this. Yeah. I tried to be as blunt as possible to go and say, mm. this is what you're up against. And this is what mm. worked for us, what didn't work. Um, so hopefully uh, people will try some new and different experiments. Yeah, I, I think competition and innovation in the education space would be welcome by everybody except maybe some unions that really don't want to have the competition. But, you know, if if parents were able to take their 10K that were, you know, and get a credit and some par and five parents, six parents got together and hired a teacher, like let them do that and let them experiment and see oh, if that, it works that, better for their kids. That's what No, that's happening. So that's yeah. what the charter school thing for better and for worse, which yeah. I think is largely an abuse. Um, so I think a lot of the things that are sort of done in the uh, in this area as experiments are, are actually not all that great for the kids, but um, there are some flexibilities now with the charter schools. So the charter schools, if um, they will go and you can set up your own school. So we were officially a school. Uh, we didn't get the $10,000. We didn't need it. Um, right. uh, thanks on uh, doing well in the dot, dot com boom. But 
it, there are mechanisms to try these things out. In San Francisco, yeah. you're seeing a lot of different experiments, but some of them are just so hideously expensive. And yeah. there's this idea that if we pull a lot of the rich kids out of the public schools, then right. it will drain some of the rationale, the help, the, the diversity of income diversity, but also the funding system would, would go away. Yeah. So I think we have to be careful as we do these things. Yeah, you got to be considered. But I think let's right. do some experiments. Let's learn from it. Um, but it's and, – and I'd say that the system that we did with our, with our child was uh, not for everybody. Not yeah. for everybody, but boy, did it work for him. He he did, wasn't. Yeah. He was really bright, doing. Uh, you know, he was getting A's and all. But the social environment, the schools that he was in, was was just not healthy for him. Yeah. And uh, so, this uh, and he was kind of hyperactive, and yeah, that doesn't for work kids, very well. No, if your if your kid is high verbal, high high energy, they'll just tell you like, hey, listen, can you put your kid on a pill to make them? Yes. Just, you know, put them on Riddle and put them on Adderall, uh, you know, and make them sit down and shut up and make their penmanship better and let their executive function keep them in their seat and not talking. It's like, well, what if they like to talk? What if that's their superpower in life? What if their superpower in life is to, you know, go bounce between multiple functions at a startup or in life and have a diverse skill set? Like, we want to kill that at the age of 12? Really? That's what we're doing here. Like, makes no right. sense. And all these. And, and if, I, you, not, if you're faced yeah. with thirty kids all, all, and you're trying to keep order, yeah, that's going to be one of the tools you're going to go to. So, yeah. there's the school system works for some. Let's find as many alternatives. Mm. I, I'm a big yeah. fan of lots of possibilities. I, when we sort of, I think we get boxed in, and we're boxing ourselves in, and then we're sort of screaming and pounding and. Uh, clubbing people when actually there are a lot more possibilities out there if we just try a, a few more things be honest straightforward transparent about what we're trying to do uh, we can learn from each other and grow and yeah. i i think that should be applied to our tech it should be applied to schools it should be applied to almost uh everything i don't yeah i don't quite use work. the term competition because that usually tends to mean marketplace competition and that's often not the right thing to go and inject into some of these environments that yeah. there are other some success metrics like do you have a happy thriving child that's really learning a lot and growing and engaged right. and curious and frankly we thankfully we uh, succeeded in this by leveraging yeah. something that I thought was too elite but it ended up costing us less than private school um, Amazing. to be able to do, and it worked for us. I mean, experimentation is a good word, right? And trying different things and being open-minded, I think is one of the problems right now, whether it's the governance of San Francisco or the country as a whole. If you were to say, uh, you know, I have an idea about how to improve policing, I'd like to try this. People would say, no, no, you have to pick. You're either anti-policing and defund the police or you're, you know, blue right. lives matter. And th there's no in-between and no experimentation. And that's what America was built on was this great experiment. America is the great experiment, the great melting pot, right? We tried something yes, new let, here. Let, let's try some things. When things aren't working, let's try a few different things. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm in San Francisco as well. And why do we have a homeless problem? We have more billionaires here than any place. Come on, yeah. we can fix this. And yeah. But what's... You know, let, let's try some things. And we're top down trying some things. Um, and I do love that about San Francisco, but probably not enough. And yeah. Um, yeah. let's let's build some uh, some new experiments. The thing I learned out of the free and open source software idea of Richard Stallman yeah. was if you're in an oppressive regime, make a little bubble with different rules. Whether it's mm. sharing software, share and share alike of software, the GNU license. And right. if it's good, it'll catch on and grow and grow, and maybe it'll take over. And the right. free and open source software worked that way. The internet worked that way. I'd say the nonprofit, the 501c3s, is another one of those some rights reserved. Right there, you're, you mm. can't take full property rights. You can't buy and sell of, of nonprofit. And maybe mm. it just works better than our for-profits. So yeah. let's go and build some alternative structures um, mm. and then learn from them. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, thank you, Brewster Cal, for spending the hour with us. And everybody, if you hear my voice right now, very simple. Go to archive.org and make that donation and make it reoccurring so that you know you set it and forget it and you're doing something to help society uh it's just a it's a it's a it's a small budget overall compared to the value it provides to humanity so let's get behind it and support it and 
Brewster, it's, it's good to know you and it's good to have you in the world. Thank you for doing the work you do. You could be off doing entrepreneurial stuff or venture capital. And you've chosen for the last couple of decades to do this for all of us. And on behalf of humanity, uh, who I do not speak for, but you know, just I really do appreciate that you've taken the time to make this your life work. It, it really is meaningful to the world that this this content, this art, this software, the science is backed up somewhere and that somebody is thinking about it. And I think when we look back a thousand years from now on this moment in humanity, you're going to come across as uh, one of the most important people at this time for having preserved uh, this moment in history. And so for that, we're, we're, we're in awe and we thank you for your service to humanity. Gosh, Jason, th- thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and with that, uh, go ahead and make your donation, everybody. We'll see you next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.